0: The following is a Westminster Seminary, California Convocation Lecture. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. It's a privilege for me to be here. Thank you for inviting me to come uh, down I-5 to, to join you. Um, greetings from uh, Dr. Barry Corey, who's the president of Bayard University, and Dr. Clint Arnold, who is the dean of Talbot School of Theology, uh, and also from Trinity Presbyterian Church, uh, my assistant pastor is here somewhere, Eric, in the back. So uh, it's it's those contexts that I very much appreciate uh, being able to serve my academic vocation and calling in in the university setting and in the church setting. Uh, and I'm excited to be here with you today. So hopefully, you got a handout. Um, it'll help us navigate some of the comments I'd like to make uh, over the next two days. So. Interpreting Scripture as canon uh, will be the focus of my two lectures. Uh, This first talk today will consider the limitations of grammatical historical interpretation and how canon can address these limitations specifically in its ability to balance the concerns of history and theology. Tomorrow, I will give some concrete examples of what difference canon makes in interpretation and we'll focus specifically on how interpreting James and First Peter in the context of the Catholic epistles will help us understand their reference to Diaspora. So tomorrow, maybe some more concrete examples of the theory I'm talking about today. So today, first, as the outline indicates, I will consider how the canon is eclipsed by history in both secular and in evangelical confessional methodologies. Second, because of a concern over the subjective use of canon in some forms of theological interpretation of Scripture, I'll briefly discuss two misapplications of canon. Here the concern is over how the necessary context of history is eclipsed by the subjective appeal to the canon. It's basically the flip side of my first point. Third and finally in today's paper, Um, Whereas tomorrow I'm going to highlight some of the historical concerns uh, that are crucial to a canonical approach, Uh, today I'm going to conclude my paper with some crucial theological concerns that arise with an emphasis on canon and interpretation. Now... Uh, The very first thing on your handout are are, are three qualifications. Um, I'm clearing my throat before I clear my throat to tell you what I want to say. (laughs) Uh, To be clear, uh, some qualifications. Number one, first, though I highlight the shortcomings of the grammatical historical method as practiced by evangelical and confessional Christian scholars, I am not, uh, I not only find the tools of grammatical historical analysis helpful but I also think that they're necessary for proper interpretation. My argument is that grammatical historical hermeneutic is necessary, but not sufficient to interpret the Bible as Christian scripture. Furthermore, several of the practitioners I offer as negative examples are actually scholars that I deeply respect and have learned much from. I do not wish to communicate either disrespect or suggest that we disregard the helpful practices they illustrate. First caveat. Uh, Second qualification is to be clear that I am not pitting history against the canon as if the development of the New Testament canon is not a historical issue. Rather, I want to argue that the canonical approach can balance history and theology and the concerns of both much better than the grammatical historical hermeneutic canon on its own. Finally, I do not wish to communicate that those doing grammatical historical analysis of the Bible must completely abandon uh, such a hermeneutic. Rather, I'm calling for an adjustment of this methodology. The canonical approach, uh, which is not technically a methodology, I'll stay a little bit more about that later, uh, the canonical approach does not pit itself against grammatical historical Uh, as a competing methodology, rather the practices of grammatical historical interpretation must be properly supplemented by and set within the context of canon. So I hope to maybe flesh these concerns out more through the paper, but keep maybe these uh, comments in mind as we move through. So maybe as a way of opening up my topic today, I can ask this question. Perhaps posing this question would help. Should the book's of the Bible be read in isolation from each other, understanding their individual historical situations as the single determinative context for their meaning, or should their collection and placement within the canon constitute a further context in which they ought to be interpreted? The default position in discussions of hermeneutical methodology, even in evangelical hermeneutical methodology, assumes that these two contexts, the compositional historical context and the canonical context, are sealed off from one another. That is, issues of canonical collection and association are either screened out as irrelevant to the task of interpretation, or more often in Christian interpretation, they are held to one side in order to make way for the logically prior or the first step of grammatical historical exegesis. Even in this latter case, the Christian interpretation of Scripture, where canon and its concerns are set aside as, second, as, a, as a second step, or as optional perhaps, even there, the canon is eclipsed by history. Let me describe both of these ways of eclipsing the canon. So point number one, canon eclipsed by history, composition over canonization. The eclipse of the canon in, a sec- in secular interpretation. First, perhaps a more secular approach would argue that grammatical historical analysis of the biblical writings on one hand and the reception historical theological study of their importance in early Christianity on the other are completely incompatible with each other. In this view, subsequent judgments regarding canon do not clarify the text, but rather obscures the Bible's Bible's meaning. Does that make sense? There's a hard division between historical and theological concerns. Let me give some examples. Adolf von Harnack argued that canonization works like a whitewash. It hides the original colors and obliterates the contours, hiding the true origin and significance of the work. For Harnack one must keep historical reading distinct from whatever later canonical meaning the Church adds to the New Testament text. Along with Harnack, William Vreda also underlined the difference between the facts of history and later theological concerns presupposed in the canon. Jens Schroeder nicely summarizes Vreda's concerns. The canon is judged as an arbitrary establishment of ancient Church authorities, legitimated by... The dogma of inspiration, uh, which is unacceptable for, the, for theologians working with a historical critical uh, methodology. Within the same vein, Franz Overbeck, uh, a contemporary of Reda, argued, "It is the nature of all canonization to make its objects unknowable." And one can also say, uh, of all the writings of the New Testament that at the moment of their canonization, they cease to be understood. They have been transposed into a higher sphere of an eternal norm for the church, not without a dense veil having been spread over their origin, their original relationships, and their original meaning. Uh, Do you you hear the basic assumptions in, in these quotes? The real meaning of the text is its historical meaning, determined by the original context of its writing. The later collection and association of these texts within the New Testament canon represents a kind of hard water deposit that needs to be chipped away in order to reveal the true original meaning of the text. Or, in Overbeck's words, canon is a veil that must be removed if the text underneath is ever going to be seen clearly. Now, Harnack, Vreda, Overbeck, they all represent the default position of most secular biblical scholars who pits the text's history or the text's situation in history over against the text's situation in canon. The historical concerns of this approach approach, uh, intentionally screen out the canonical context as irrelevant and distorting of the interpretation of the text. Of course, Christian interpreters would resist this dichotomy between composition and canonization. The theological conviction that the 66-book Bible, the authoritative canonical scripture, is necessary for Christian interpretation. Yet, as I will outline in this next section, this historical impulse to set the canon aside also affects Christian interpretation as well. So here... Subpoint, the eclipse of the canon in evangelical confessional interpretation. Signific- uh, uh, specifically discussing the possibility of a Christian understanding of the Old Testament, Walter Moberly articulates the historical problem for Christian interpreters. This is uh, Moberly. Although no part of the biblical interpretation has been unaffected by this historically-oriented approach, its results have been most particularly striking with regard to a Christian understanding of the Old Testament. While it still makes some sense, historically, to see Christ as the key to the New Testament, since all of its writers explicitly refer uh, to Christ, this could hardly be appropriate for the Old Testament, which was all written before Christ's birth. That's Moberly. Now, pushing beyond this original question of how to interpret the Old Testament and understand it, it's speaking of Jesus Christ, Moberly f- further highlights the interpretive problem. He says this, To accept the validity of these dogmas, Trinity, Incarnation, and Canon, is a part of the definition of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, So, so Moberly saying to be a Christian means you believe in the Trinity, You believe in the incarnation and you believe in the canon. That's what it means to be a Christian, Moberly again. Yet on the other hand, because none of these dogmas were formulated by the biblical writers and are therefore technically anachronistic for an understanding of the biblical material in its original context, historical criticism has insisted that they be excluded from the pre-understanding the reader brings to the text. To be a Christian means accepting certain theological dogmas. To read the Bible historically means excluding those theological dogmas. Is the problem clear? Moberly is posing the issue of how do we read the Bible historically as Christians? In Moberly's terms, Christian interpreters accept these doctrines of Trinity incarnation and canon. However, in much of contemporary evangelical and confessional biblical interpretation, the issues raised by these doctrines are often held to one side in order to make way for the logically prior, the first step of grammatical historical exegesis. Although attempting to hold the theological significance of the canon, the default approach of the grammatical historical hermeneutic is to privilege the historical moment of composition at the expense of the canonization of the New Testament. So I can't offer a comprehensive description of the history and development of the grammatical historical method as put to use by evangelical scholars, but let me provide a brief sketch. After a few orienting comments, I will largely rely upon Craig Blomberg's description of the grammatical historical hermeneutic as representative of evangelical practice. So a few orienting comments. Some names of scholars you might recognize. These are the scholars I appreciate, but I'm criticizing, so I'm trying to walk a balance, uh, a fine line here. So first, a few orienting comments. Grant Osborne notes, since Christianity is a historical religion, the interpreter must recognize that an understanding of the history and culture within which the passage was produced is an indispensable tool for uncovering the meaning of that passage. Another evangelical interpreter argues, since the text cannot mean what it never meant, and since a text always means something in the historical context of its author, then understanding the text's historical context aids in understanding the text itself. For E.D. Hirsch... It is discerning the historical author's intention that uncovers the meaning of the text. Hirsch says, all valid interpretation of every sort is founded upon the recognition of what the historical author meant. Uh, Risking stepping on some toes here, Richard Gaffin himself notes, uh, the proper focus of interpretation is the subject matter of the text. That is the history with Christ as its center that lies in back of the text. The context that un- ultimately controls the understanding of a given text is not the literary framework or the pattern of relationships, but the historical structure of the revelation process itself. Now, as a caveat, I realize that Gaffin might be describing that the text of Scripture was referring to um, redemptive history. Uh, not just the historical context of the author, though I still worry about some of the historical assumptions that even Gaffin has in describing the text's reference to a redemptive historical movement. Maybe that'll come out in some questions later on. Uh, but here I'm trying to develop this uh, evangelical use of grammatical historical hermeneutic that sets aside canon. Craig Blomberg clarifies the relationship between the historical author's intention and the meaning of the text. Blomberg says this, what is described as discerning authorial intent, moreover, is often really shorthand for discerning the most likely meaning of a a given text in light of all that we can recover about its original authors, audiences, and the historical and culture milieus in which they lived. Broadly representative, of evangelical hermeneutical practice, Blomberg argues that grammatical historical interpretation is first grammatical in that it insists on a careful study of words, grammatical forms, sentence parts, sentences, and multi-sentence structures as they relate to each other. It is also historical in that it analyzes the historical setting in which a given communicative act occurs, which takes account of whatever knowledge the author and audience share about past or present events, customs and practices, culture and society, and so on. So it's grammatical and historical. Importantly, Blomberg goes on to note what the grammatical historical method does not seek to accomplish. The grammatical historical method does not focus on implied authors or readers, nor is it satisfied with an appreciation of the coherent narrative world internal to the text the grammatical historical method does not make synthetic conclusions regarding theological concerns in the text. That is, the grammatical historical uh, reading does not systematize theological concerns across books, let alone across testaments. Blumberg, Blumberg concludes that the grammatical historical method tends not to raise questions of contemporary significance, application, or contextualization nor does it locate a biblical passage in the flow of redemptive history. And it is not concerned with later stages of canonical development when interpreters read those books alongside other canonized books. Now, for Blomberg, uh, such questions are legitimate, but if some of the answers to those questions, questions of redemptive history, questions of application, questions um, of uh, theological synthesis... Uh, Blomberg says, such questions are legitimate, but if some of the answers to those questions contradict the interpretation of the texts in their own integrity, the former must be eschewed in favor of the latter. In other words, insights derived from other methods that do not cohere with the results of grammatical historical investigation are to be rejected. In this claim, Bloomberg implies that because issues of canon, collection and association, are historically speaking anachronistic, the fact of a later canon cannot provide hermeneutical insights beyond the parameters set by historical grammatical inquiry. But this begs the question of why read the New Testament exclusively at all. The fact of uh, the New Testament is that it's a privileged set of texts. That hold together, that a Christian presumes or presupposes, need to be read in mutual interpretive, uh, in a mutually interpretive way. But if we follow the grammatical-historical approach, uh, not privileging their collection together, one that might just beg the question: Why read the New Testament as a special collection of texts anyway? I hope that pushback is uh, is clear. Blomberg, continuing with his approach, Blomberg is, however, careful to indicate that he does not think the grammatical historical hermeneutic is the only method. Yet, he states, I am convinced that all of the other methods must build on the historical critical, historical grammatical method in order to function legitimately. In this last assertion, I find something most problematic. It's not that history is important, or even that history is necessary in our interpretive process, but it is that history is given a foundational role. It's logically prior to any other way of interpreting the text. The claim that grammatical historical methodology as defined by Blomberg is sufficient, both on its own and prior to other methods, for discovering what the text means, I think is flawed. This, in the next subsection, is what I think I'm going to call a kind of dogmatic dislocation of of history. Now, I'm riffing on uh, John Webster here. Uh, But this kind of dogmatic dislocation of history within a Christian hermeneutic uh, is a dislocation because history is given temporal. uh, It's the first step in any hermeneutic. It's what you have to do first. Uh, And also logically, prior, all other forms of knowing are based upon this historical discovery. Uh, I I think both of these moves are problematic. Giving giving in grammatical historical hermeneutic, giving history, temporal and logical priority uh, are problematic. John Webster argues affirmations about the natural history of the biblical text go wrong not in claiming necessity for themselves but in claiming sufficiency. So notice I'm going to say this several times. History is necessary, uh, but it's not sufficient on its own. And this is what Webster's saying. When the grammatical historical context of the text is seen as sufficient in and of itself, that's when there is a problem. The problem raised by Webster is that when the historical elements of Scripture are taken as both a complete description of what the Bible is and a sufficient means to determine what the Bible means, two fundamental fundamental mistakes have been made. First is a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. It's a faulty ontology of Scripture. The Bible is not just a historical book. Theologians don't somehow make the Bible theological, Or bring illegitimate theological concern to the text. Now, caveat here, you can bring illegitimate theological concerns to the text. What what I'm trying to say is that the the text is already theological. We don't make it theological by the kinds of questions we bring to it. Um, The text itself bears both historical and theological concerns. The Bible is a theological text situated in history. Therefore, any hermeneutical approach that either rejects theological concerns of canon or uh, sets them to one side to play a secondary role, in my opinion, will inevitably misconstrue the text because it has misdiagnosed what's being interpreted. I'll return to this point in the last section of my paper, but that's the first problem that Webster's pointing out. Second, Webster comments, uh, second Webster's comment exposes a, the related faulty understanding of the process of interpretation itself. When the grammatical historical method is seen as not only necessary but also sufficient on its own to determine the meaning of the text, it goes wrong because of what it leaves out. Again, Webster argues, to simplify matters rather drastically... A dominant trajectory in the modern development of study of the Bible has been a progressive concentration on what Spinoza called interpretation of Scripture out of its own history. The problem, again using Webster's terms, is that the enumeration of Scripture's natural properties becomes increasingly not only a necessary but a sufficient description of the Bible and its reception. In other words, let me try to make clear the major shortcoming of the grammatical historical method is that it is too often seen as interpretation in toto, with its practitioners assuming that once the grammatical historical exegesis is complete, the meaning of the text has been discovered and the act of interpretation is at an end. Of course, one could go on to consider how the text was received into canon. One could consider what that might mean for the church or for systematic theology, but such a step is secondary. It comes after grammatical historical exegesis. And further, whatever theological, canonical concerns surface, they all must be logically grounded in that grammatical historical exegesis. Namely, theological knowledge must be founded upon the grammatically historically determined meaning of the text in order for it to be legitimate. It's kind of like the foundation of a building. In this approach, grammatical historical, the historical exegetical meaning of the text is the foundation. And we know that any building that's stable can't build outside that foundation or the building's going to tip over. So any theological concerns that are you know, put on the second floor, third floor, or the roof, they all have to be within the footprint of the grammatical historical determined meaning of the text. Is that making sense? In this way, any c- canonical concern, theological concern, is, maybe I'll say it too strongly, is held hostage to that historical grammatical concern. I, I hope I'm making clear something of the problem uh, Whether only marginalizing canon, grammatical-historical, or completely disregarding it, historical-critical, both approaches minimize the hermeneutical role that canon, I think, should play in interpretation. So, second part of the paper, uh, uh, history eclipsed by canon, canonization over composition. Uh, On on the other hand, here's where I'm worried about some subjective appeals to canon, where canonization is is strong, but history then is disregarded. Uh, So let me say a couple of comments here. On the other hand, there there can be uh, serious problems running in the opposite direction. The issues of canon can be wrongly understood to emphasize the later canonical context at the expense of the compositional context. A kind of distorted theological interpretation of Scripture rejects historical criticism to the point of minimizing the importance of the historical or original author, audience, and situation of composition. Rather than the historical situation of composition, it's the moment that the text uh, is used as Scripture in a believing community that gives the Bible its authority, Uh, Let me briefly illustrate two concerns here. First, canonization over uh, composition, and then second, canon is defined as use. So first, the issue of canonization at the expense of composition. Here, one could argue that the meaning and importance uh, of the text comes only from its point of canonization, Rather than looking to the historical circumstances of composition for the meaning of the text, the focus is uh, the canonization of the biblical texts and not their composition. Uh, The canonization of the text is the real point of origin uh, when the church's scripture becomes authoritative. Robert Wall uh, has made this argument, de-emphasizing the moment of composition. Wall argues that the intended meaning of the biblical text is not a property of its author, but of the church to whom Scripture belongs. It is the moment of canonization, the moment when the church or various believing communities receives the text of Scripture, that they become a canonical whole. Furthermore, Wall argues that the apostolicity of the biblical text is recognized by the church when it's used, not when it was written. Uh, And furthermore, these churchly judgments about apostolicity are therefore mostly intuitively rather than critically discerned and are based on track records of practical use by Christians as means of divine grace. Wall thus drives a wedge between history and theology, yet unlike Harnack and Blomberg, it's the historical context that is marginalized rather than the canonical. He pits the historically situated author uh, and the text over against the church's later appropriation of the text as Scripture. So hopefully you can see this is subjective. This is putting way too much emphasis on the moment some Christian community at a later time receives the text, receives the 66 books of the canon as authoritative. Uh, that's, that's to emphasize a subjective receiving of the canon, and that's not what I'm arguing for. Uh, and, in fact, the canonical approach need not follow... Wall in Wall's footsteps, rather than relativizing composition in light of canonization, the canonical approach of Brevard Childs holds both of them together. Childs insisted the concept of canon was not a late ecclesialast- uh, I'm sorry, ecclesiastical ordering, which was basically foreign to the material itself, but that a canonical consciousness lay deep within the formation of the literature. The term also serves to focus attention on the theological forces at work in its composition. The modern theological function of canon lies in the literature itself as it has been treasured, transmitted, and transformed. The quote there by Childs is on your handout, and I'm wanting to emphasize Childs is saying this notion of canon is baked into the very literature of the text itself. It's not something that happens to the canon later on. It's something that's already there. Uh, A friend of Brevard Child's, Leander Keck, uh, correctly understood Child's concerns, and Leander Keck says this about Child's approach, canonization is not reducible to an event that befell the writings, something that happened to them, an ecclesial act that made them something they had not already become. It was instead a formal acknowledgment of the writings' roles uh, in which the church experienced The the writings of the New Testament never lacked a canonical dimension. None were created to express someone's creativity. All manifested the author's sense of being authorized by the gospel and were used in the church because it acknowledged the validity of that authorization. So my point here is, rather than minimizing historical context... A canonical approach understands the fundamental connection between the text's situation in history, its composition, and the text situation in canon, its canonization. What I'm trying to propose is something that holds both of those things together. Canon is a concept that holds both together. Briefly, canon is use. Now, this is a second concern. Closely connected to his emphasis on canonization over composition, Wall defines canon and its authority as a function of its use in the church. He argues that the production of the biblical canon is not predicated on the identity of the text's author, but on its effect in forming a congregation that is wise for salvation and mature for good works. Wall basically says, who cares who writes it? But if it's used and useful, and if people's lives are changed, that's what gives the text its authority, not who wrote it. Again, Wall goes on to note, God inspired the performance rather than the production of Scripture. He continues to argue, the aim of faithful exegesis is not to hunt down the normative meaning of the text based on what the author or first readers intended... The goal of critical exegesis is to build a consensus within the community of readers, agreeing on what the text plainly says, ideally in anticipation of its various performances as a sacred text. So so in all of this, uh, rather than the historical moment of composition where authors in historical context and first readers are investigated, it is the subsequent use of the text by a believing community, These, these performances of the sacred text, Uh, that lead to the authority of the canon. For Wall, this is the canonical context which aids Christian interpretation. I've already said this, uh, but but, a canonical approach uh, need not go in this direction. Rather, what Wall is talking about is really more a readerly focused uh, approach that represents a kind of theological subjectivism. A canonical approach does not need to pit composition against canonization, but rather finds the historical development between these two poles as hermeneutically significant. In other words, the kind of canonical approach I'm arguing for is one that sees the moment of composition through a process to the text's final canonization. That whole process is important. That whole process can be described historically, but that whole process is also Imbued with God's providence. Theologically, something's going on in that process. So, again, I think a historical grammatical approach minimizes canon, but there's a kind of theological approach that can uh, minimize history, and both of those are wrong steps. So, here the last, third, and last section of today's paper canon as balancing history and theology. Here I'm going to talk about some theological concerns. Like I said, tomorrow, I'll maybe outline some more historical concerns that are bound up in canon. So on your handout, key quote from uh, Stephen B. Chapman. Stephen B. Chapman rightly notes, the church's concept of canon lay precisely at the fault line between history and theology. And the historical and theological characteristics of canon constitute a critical way forward, or or perhaps a way back, uh, to reading uh, the Bible in a... Uh, confessional, Christian kind of way, so I'm not sure if this is going forwards or maybe it's going backwards to go forwards. (laughs) Uh, But canon is the way, I think, for biblical interpretation in the church to hold together history and theology. Here in the final section of my paper, let me list some important theological concerns that surface in the canonical approach. Concerns which I think should guide us in our interpretation. First, an ontology of Scripture. Uh, This is what I was talking about before. I'm returning to it now. John Webster has argued with great energy that when interpreters attempt to understand the Old and New Testaments, they should first be mindful of what the Bible is. He notes that proposals about theological interpretation of the Bible commonly lack an ontology of Scripture. Webster continues by noting, when theological interpretation reads for certain theological themes or when it reads under the tutelage of of the church's traditions, I might add here, when we read under the guidance of the confession, um, or when, back to Webster, or when we read under uh, the guide of, um, uh, yeah, traditions of, of interpretation, it will only prove fruitful if grounded in a theological account of what Scripture is. When there is confusion over what Scripture is, its theological ontology, there will be confusion over how to read it and interpret it. Kevin Van Hooser, in a similar note, uh, says we only know what the Bible and reason really are when we first consider their natures and their ends in relation to God. Again, we will not know how to interpret the Bible unless we first know what it is and what it's for. Scripture is the supreme literary expression of God's self-revelation in history. Because God has chosen to reveal himself in scripture, Christians confess that God's providence can be seen in the moments of writing, transmission, and final collection of these texts into a canon. This canonical process that stretches from composition to canonization was not the power play of early church leaders. It was not an arbitrary decision forced upon the text nor was it merely an accident of history. Rather, the God who inspired the writing of these divine texts is the same God who, in his providence, directed their transmission, their redaction, their collection and arrangement within the canon. That is, both composition and canonization constitute what the Bible is, and therefore, in order to understand what the Bible and its text means, both composition and canonization must play a role in our hermeneutics. Second point, a a two testament uh, and one Christian scripture. Part of acknowledging the nature of a scriptural canon is to understand that it is fundamentally a two testament reality. Again, Brevard Childs argued that biblical theology is, by definition, theological reflection on both the Old and New Testament. In the same vein, Christopher Seitz asserts that Christian theological reflection on the canon of scripture as a twofold uh, in essence, is the main task of biblical theology. The same could be said about biblical interpretation in, in general. When interpreting the meaning of Christian scripture, it will always require theological reflection on the canon of scripture as a twofold essence. Furthermore, uh, John Levinson, uh, though himself not even a Christian interpreter, he's, he's Jewish, nonetheless argues that Christian exegesis requires that the Hebrew Bible be read ultimately in a literary context that includes the New Testament. Christian theology cannot tolerate exegesis that leaves the two testaments independent of each other, lest the Marcionite Gnostics or the Jews win the ancient debate. But the two anthologies cannot be collapsed into one either, lest the newness of the New Testament be lost. All that's from John Levinson. An amazing quote from a Jewish scholar, uh, a good observer of what good Christian exegesis should look like. Harkening back to the beginning of my paper, if, in Levinson's terms, Christian theology cannot tolerate exegesis that leaves the two testaments independent of each other, how then can a Christian appropriation of grammatical historical exegesis in practice do just that? The meaning of the text of Scripture is at stake, and a two-testament Christian witness is the context in which we have to come to understand those texts. Canonical interpretation of the text insists upon maintaining a relationship between the two Testaments. Yet, this leads to the more specific question of how the two Testaments are related. How does a canonical reading of the Bible understand the relationship between the Old and New Testaments? As Levinson noted... Christian exegesis must address the relationship between the two Testaments, one, without conflating them, that is, smashing them together, so they're indistinct, uh, or separating them such that they speak to two different religions, Christianity and Judaism. Here again is where canon offers some initial hermeneutical guidance. The very shape of the canon gives us at least some indication of how to understand The New and Old Testament goes together. Let me give you two quotes. Uh, One, Bern Janowski notes that when the Old Testament was joined together to the New to form the Christian Bible, the first part, the Old Testament, remained surprisingly unaltered. Uh, No decision was made to exclude certain books or passages. No attempt was made to Christianize the Old Testament by introducing redactional intrusions, as, for example, could be the case by adding Christian commentaries. What must be acknowledged is precisely the lack of Christian redaction of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not Christianized internally, but externally. A further collection of writings is placed alongside it, which together form the Christian Bible. Like Janowski, another quote, uh, Stephen Chapman uh, says something very similar. By establishing the canonical format of the Christian scriptures as one Bible in two testaments, the church simultaneously proclaimed both that the Old Testament had a Christian witness, the Old Testament witnesses to Christ, and that the Old Testament's pre-Christian form had lasting theological significance. Both of these quotations, what I'm trying to get at is, the Old Testament remained the Old Testament, It wasn't changed in order for it to speak about Christ. It wasn't reorganized. Okay, the Septuagint has a slightly different order than the Masoretic text. That's something I might talk about tomorrow. But in essence, the Old Testament remains the Old Testament and still speaks to Christ. It's the situation of those two Testaments together that I think are hermeneutically significant. What is on display here is is that the two, the Old and the New Testament, stand together together as Old Testament and as New Testament, both of them witnessing to the same subject matter, both witnessing to Christ. So to answer the question about the relationship between the New and Old Testament, uh, one, it must be a fundamental part of Christian interpretation. Every time we're interpreting a passage of Scripture, we need to be thinking about the fundamental relationship between the New and Old Testament. But second, building on the comments of both Janowski and and, um, Chapman, And Brevard Childs before them argued for a dialectical relationship between the New and Old Testaments. Childs insisted that our Bible consists of two normative testaments as equal testimonies. For Childs, the church fused two discrete entities into one book, confessing that both parts witness equally, albeit in different ways, to the same Lord Jesus Christ. Holding the two testaments together as equal but distinct must influence all exegesis, not only where the New Testament uses the Old Testament. I could say more about that, uh, uh, but the interaction between the old two te- uh, New and Old Testament goes way beyond just the New Testament's use of the Old. Canon as recontextualization. Now, two more points and then my conclusion. So, canon as recontextualization. The hermeneutical approach offered in confessional Bible colleges and seminaries is often laid out in a number of steps. No doubt you've taken a hermeneutics class where this might sound familiar. I teach a class like this (laughs) where after determining the original meaning of the text through grammatical historical analysis, the text must then be recontextualized for the moment of preaching or application. So this moment of recontextualization comes after the hard work of textual analysis and coming to a meaning of the text. That meaning must be recontextualized for the purpose of preaching or communication. But this type of step approach completely misses the fact that the text has already been recontextualized the texts of Scripture have already been recontextualized in the context of the Christian canon. Again, Levinson notes, the fact of canon also challenges the most basic presupposition of historical criticism, that a book must be understood only within the context in which it was produced. The very existence of a canon testifies to the reality of recontextualization. Now again, let me be clear, this is not to minimize history or to pit history against canonical context. Levinson himself goes on to say that even within the text, uh, even when the text is recontextualized in the canon, that the original culture continues to inform the text. And because the Bible can never be altogether disengaged from its culture, uh, the culture of its authors and histor- historical context, this history is necessary. But what I am trying to say is that often our interpretation moves right along and our recontextualization moves right along without having noticed the texts have already been recontextualized in this context of canon and that that recontextualization in canon bears upon the meaning of those texts and actually can nourish Christian preaching of the gospel from those texts. Last point, witness and subject matter. A final interpretive implication of the canonical approach is understanding that the historical task of describing what the Bible says, describing the words on the page, and the theological task of considering the reality of God in himself, the constructive task of systematic theology, these two things must remain connected. Constructive systematic theology cannot become disconnected from the historical analysis of what the Bible says. This is the, the cancer that most of modern biblical scholarship has suffered from, the disconnection between historical biblical studies uh, and, and systematic theology. This is something Christian interpreters should be most interested in reconnecting. Constructive systematic theology cannot be disconnected from the historical analysis of what the Bible says. According, again, to Leander Keck, Childs wanted to hold together dialectically historical analysis and theological insight, insisting... Uh, Instead of separating them sequentially, first history, then interpretation, as in much of liberal theology, or fusing them materially, and therefore also methodologically, as common in defensive conservatism or fundamentalism. To avoid both pitfalls, Childs developed the canonical approach as a hermeneutical alternative in order to describe the uh, in order I'm sorry, in order to describe how historical description remains connected to theological construction, childs often use the key terms of witness and subject matter. For childs, the witness refers to the text, the words, the sentences and paragraphs and entire books of the Bible. That's the witness. The witness comes to us in a final form, the canonical form, the Christian canon. On the other hand, the subject matter, uh, disaka or the race, is, is the thing to which the witness refers... Now, hopefully, uh, you church historians might hear an echo in Child's terms here, an echo uh, of Augustine, who long ago noted that signs, the words of Scripture, point to things, the subject matter of Scripture. Is, is this clear? Signs, words, they point to things. If, uh, if, uh, apologies if you're from Victorville. But if I'm standing in Victorville under a sign that says Los Angeles, if I st- stand under that sign and say, look, I'm in L.A., People would say, no, you're not. You're in Victorville. And that's kind of a hard place to be stuck, right? Uh, You would confuse the sign for the thing it points to. So it's very important to keep sign and thing related yet distinct. When Childs uses the terms witness and subject matter, that's by and large what he's talking about. The witness, the scriptures point to realities uh, beyond themselves. Let me me use an example that that Childs himself used. Using the example of the economic versus imminent trinity, Childs illustrates how the witness sign relates to the subject matter, the thing. Canonical biblical interpretation takes seriously the historical forms of the biblical witness, which are registered in two testaments. Yet it was a fatal mistake for some forms of interpretation when dealing with the identity of God to feel that it could reflect on the subject only in terms of its historical sequence. This appeal to the so-called economic trinity would restrict the doctrine of God to the divine workings within a historical trajectory. However, the attempt to describe God's identity, God in himself, in say merely in terms of his acts, apart from his being, is not a serious theological option for either biblical or dogmatic theology. What Childs is saying here is that if we take the words of Scripture and, and take the reality of God and collapse that into Scripture, we've, we've missed the reality of God. We've collapsed God himself into the text that witnesses to him. That's an example of collapsing one into the other, collapsing the thing into the sign. He goes on to say the subject matter itself requires that proper theological understanding move from biblical witness to the reality itself that it refers to. And it's important to note that there is no slippage in between. The witness points to reality in an authoritative, truthful way that gives us access, albeit uh, incomplete, uh, access to understand God Therefore, the historical sequence of God's acts, economic trinity, put forth in the witness, the biblical text, point to the being of God, the imminent trinity. Childs insists that the subject matter requires that proper theological understanding move from biblical witness to the reality itself, and perhaps back again. That's a loop that's connected. This last bit is in your handout as well. The canonical approach insists that witness and subject matter not be collapsed nor separated from one another. Webster poses a helpful analogy that illustrates the connection between witness or sign and subject matter thing. He notes, there is a parallel here with the elements of the Lord's Supper. Bread and wine are signs in the economy of salvation. By them, the ascended Christ uh, 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 distributes the benefits of his saving achievement, comforting and nourishing his people by his presence. These functions do not detract from the created materiality of the elements, but indicate rather that such created realities are taken up into the divine service. So also, holy scripture, prophetic and apostolic words, are no less creaturely for being servants of the divine word. Instead, the creaturely nature is therein fulfilled. It is a bad dualist habit which assumes that scriptural texts are most basically products of of a religious cultural world, to be uh, uh, investigated as such and only secondarily uh, describable as prophetic and apostolic testimony. Do you hear in the last sentence there by Webster, that's the concern I've been trying to, to articulate, that the Bible in, in, in grammatical historical terms is only treated as a religious cultural artifact um, and only secondarily can it be described as prophetic and apostolic testimony. The canonical approach holds those holds those two things together, unlike what grammatical historical methodology can do. As bread and wine serve as signs in the economy of salvation, pointing to the reality, the subject matter of the Lord's body and blood, so too scripture is a sign, a creaturely word, that points to the awesome reality of God. A canonical approach to interpretation holds this role of scripture in view within the process of exegesis. My conclusion, just to restate some of what I've said, We started with the question of whether canon clarifies or obscures the meaning of the text. I suggested that both historical-critical and grammatical-historical methodologies tend to either disregard, historical-critical, or marginalize, grammatical-historical, the canon in biblical interpretation. Yet although I have attempted to argue that history and theology find their right balance in a canonical approach to interpretation, such an approach must be careful to avoid pitting canonization against composition or defining canon by appealing to the church's use or performance of the text. Those would be theologically uh, subjective ways of thinking about canon. Rather, I suggest that a canonical approach guides interpretation by attending to what the Bible is theological ontology of scripture. It remembers that scripture, in essence, is a two-testament witness to Jesus Christ, that the biblical texts have already been recontextualized in the Christian canon, and that should shape and guide our interpretation, and that as a unified canon, the text is is a witness that points to the ultimate subject matter, God himself. I hope to give some more concrete examples of some of these things I've talked about theoretically today, so thank you for your attention. We'll see you tomorrow. And as we conclude, let me pray for us as we are dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son into this world to reconcile enemies. And in that reconciliation, you, through the apostle and prophet, have recorded for us definitively the work of Christ, that, that we then can in turn uh, devote ourselves to studying Scripture, uh, that we might understand the whole counsel of God, uh, and and proclaim that to your people and to the world as, as witness. Father, I pray that as we go on to class and continue to study, uh, pray that uh, w- we would appreciate what you have done in your Son and in your providence in preserving the canon. Father, pray that some of the words that I have said here might, might be helpful, uh, but most importantly, in the power of your Spirit, uh, may they encourage us. Lord, we thank you for our time, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.